This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can be with us. And for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular issue in your life or ministry or church, and you're looking for biblical clarification. If we can be of help, by God's grace, we'll do the best we can. Uh, People have several ways in which they can contact us. You can email us here directly, TBL, that stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. You can call us at our toll-free 877 exchange, and it's simply the call letters, WAGP 980-877-WAGP 980, or the 843 South Carolina Exchange 525-1859. When you call, uh, you can go on the air live, and we do give priority to live callers, or you can simply dictate your question uh, however you'd like to give it. Or again, you can email us at tbl at wagp.net. Let's go ahead and get started. Walter, great to be here uh, on this Tuesday. Oh, yes, sir. All right, our first question uh, comes from Robert out of Guyton, Georgia. He says, hi, I'm a 57-year-old, 20-year-plus Christian man that has read the Bible almost daily for many years. I have read the NAS, NLT, NIV, King James Version, and the NLT Life Application Study Bible. I love God's Word. I would like to find the best, in your opinion, study Bible to read. What would your suggestion be? I have great respect for you and your teachings. Thank you. Well, Roger, thanks for your encouragement. Uh, I think there's a couple of parameters that we need to start with. First, translation, and then types of study Bibles. There's uh, basically three kinds of translations, and I have a course called Bibliology, Uh, It's not for the faint of heart, I often tell people. It's one of the longer courses that we have in our Institute of Biblical Studies. It can be found at searchthescriptures.org. And in section six of that course, I do an evaluation of the different kinds of translations. One is uh, uh, what we call an essentially literal translation, or uh, in the past it was called formal equivalent. But basically what it tries to do is as close as possible do a word-for-word translation from the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, directly into, in our case, the English tongue. Um, So they're not really interpreting, they're just simply translating. And there are some that do this to a higher degree than others. Certainly, the New American Standard Bible, that's the one I preach from. Uh, And you'll find that most who are Bible expositors, verse by verse, there's a lot that now comes under the name of Bible exposition, It's really not Bible exposition at all, but uh, Bible exposition is when you take a text, it might be a whole book, it might just be a passage from a book, and you go through it word by word, uh, line by line, verse by verse, in terms of what it meant in its original historical context and then how it applies. Uh, The NAS, uh, New King James Version, Old King James, uh, uh, the English Standard Version, those would certainly be kind of a word-for-word Uh, translation. 
Uh, then there's what we call a dynamic equivalent, or sometimes it's called a functional equivalent. And instead of going word for word, it goes thought for thought. And so what happens in that kind of situation is there's a little more interpretation that takes place. Um, translations like this would be like the NIV. Um, and then you kind of go from there, and you have some that really move past what we would call a functional equivalent or a dynamic equivalent into a paraphrase. And that would be the third group of paraphrase, where you just totally paraphrase the text. But in a dynamic equivalent, they're doing thought for thought. Uh, there are some real limitations to that because instead of uh, translating precisely what God said, and I think there's a reason God gave it to us. Uh, for instance, let me give you an example. Um, let me go to Romans chapter 8 here for just a second. Paul in Romans chapter 8 is talking about the Spirit of God and um, our relationship to Him and how we're not to set our mind on the flesh, but on the things of the Spirit. And so he talks about, um, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. And and again, that's the context, that's, that's the flow. If, if But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, uh, and this is how we should live. And uh, and then he says, all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. And and then he says, uh, the Spirit uh, testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And then it goes on to say, he. Who's the he? The ne nearest antecedent would be the Spirit. But for instance, in the NIV, instead of saying he, they write the Spirit. Now, is that correct? Well, it is interpretively, but not in terms of translation. And so you say, well, that's the meaning, that's the essence, why not just go with that? Because I think God would have us to think. And so when we read word by word, it causes us to think, to meditate, to ponder on the Scripture. And again, the more you do that, and the NIV does it more than uh, certainly the ESV or the NASB or the King James or New King James, it does it quite a bit. In fact, they have gone to the point where in the NIV, for instance, they've become uh, gender sensitive. So you mentioned uh, the New Living Translation. Uh, let, let me just back up on that. The, the New Living Translation was a rewrite of what Kenneth uh, Taylor did in the 1960s called the Living Bible. He was in a Sunday school class, and he was teaching Galatians. At least this is the a story as he told it, I read his testimony many, many years ago, good godly man. Um, and he, he said, you know, I'd read to my kids at night and they couldn't seem to understand it. So I would just go and I would take a paragraph of scripture and I would paraphrase it. And one time I was teaching my Sunday school class and I brought the paraphrase that I gave to my kids in Galatians. And they said, wow, this is like really helpful. Why don't you do this for the whole Bible? Well, if I paraphrase your words, I'm communicating maybe your general thoughts, but I'm going to lose something in a paraphrase. And so a paraphrase does a lot of interpretation. And Kenneth Taylor, though he consulted Greek scholars and Hebrew scholars on occasion, he didn't know any Hebrew or Greek. And so he basically ended up writing a commentary on the Bible. Have I used the Living Bible? Well, yes. Uh, it's written actually on a first grade level. Uh, and so I remember handing a living Bible to someone whose reading skills were very limited, and it was a great blessing to them to have the living Bible. Um, 
some years later in the 1980s, um, Tyndale came together with some 90 Greek and Hebrew scholars, and they took the old Living Bible, and after many years of work, it was in the mid-90s, they came up with the New Living Translation. Uh, and so it's a translation, the NLT, uh, and it's done by a group of people. But again, it is still essentially a paraphrase. And the New Living Translation has done what other translations like the new RSV. Uh, in fact, um, Walter, can you look up John 14, 23? Uh, you have your computer there. Yes, and sir. look it up in the NLT, uh, John 14, 23 in the NLT. And one of the things they did is they made it gender uh, sensitive and in some cases gender neutral. In fact, I was just trying to help someone to find a church in Greenville, South Carolina, and they said, what do you think about such and such a church? And I said, well, I'm not super familiar with it, but let me dig into it. And so I did, and I came back, and I said, you know, they're really squishy. They're side B on same-sex attraction, meaning you can embrace your same-sex attraction feelings. You don't need to repent of them. As long as you don't act on them, that that's really weak. That's the next step to the body of Christ totally embracing homosexuality. But then I said, well, here's the pastor, and he had a little question and answer voice clip and why he uses the NLT. I said, well, it's consistent with his squishiness on, um, uh, on same-sex attraction because what they end up doing is they change the pronouns, he and him and so on, so as not to be offensive. Now, there are times, certainly, when, for instance, um, maybe it's not as much understood in the culture that we live in. So when the text says brethren, <clears throat> clearly a generic term in most usages, it means brothers and sisters, brethren and sister. Okay, not a problem with that. Or when the word anthropos, or in the plural anthropoies used, men, he's not talking about men in deference to women, there's another Greek word for that. If a man, there he uses the word arnair, looks in the mirror in deference to a woman or when the seven uh, elder, excuse me, deacons are selected in Acts 6, he uses the term for a male in deference to a female. But when it's the word anthropos, it means people, men and women alike. So, okay, no problem with that. But what is John 14, 23? Let me read it first. Let me just turn to... <clears throat> And I'm familiar with this because, again, I did an analysis on these uh, major English translations. Uh, so um, in John 14, 23, in the NASB, Jesus said this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will disclose, we will come to him, and we'll make our abode with him. Now, that's the NASB. And again, it uses the word him here. Now, clearly, contextually, he's not ruling out women, but still the text uses him. Now, what does the um, uh, New Living Translation say? Do you have it there, Walter? Yes, sir. It says in John 14, 23, Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Okay, so the Greek New Testament says, if anyone loves me, and again, it's a singular, and so it's the Greek pronoun tis that can mean he or she. 
That would obviously be awkward to put it into English to communicate. If anyone loves me, he or she will keep my word and my father will come and love him or her and so on. So we just go with the traditional Greek reading. And again, it's obvious contextually. But what the NLT does is they change the he because we don't want to be offensive or him. And they rendered it them. All who love me do what I say and my father will love them and we will come and make our home with them. The problem is, is Jesus is not using plural pronouns here. He uses singulars. And Jesus wanted to specify that both he and the Father would come and dwell with an individual believer. But the NLT has lost that emphasis because they've made it plural so as not to be offensive, and they make it a group. We will come to them and make our home with them indicates maybe coming to a group of people or even to a local church, and that changes the meaning of the text. Pull up Revelation 3.20. I remember that one in my analysis. Pull that up in the NLT. In the NASB, most of you have it memorized. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and he will dine with me, and so on. What does it say in the uh, NLT? In the NLT, Revelation 3.20 says, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Okay, so if you, um, so he's changed the pronoun from him to you, these translations. And by the way, the NIV, the New Edition, uh, CEV, NLT, a whole bunch of translations do that. But it doesn't say plurally, it's singular. And so Jesus is not eating and drinking, so to speak, and dining with an entire church, but with an individual. And so there's a serious loss of, I think, specific application in what God intended and the promise that he gave. And there's just like dozens of places where they do that. And in some places, they totally distort the meaning. So bottom line, if you're going to think about a study Bible, I'm answering your question, I think you need a a formal um, equivalent and not a dynamic equivalent. You need a essentially literal translation like the NAS or ESV or New King James and so forth. Then when you go from there, you come to various types of study Bibles. There's interpretive-centered studied Bibles where they're, they're trying to note specifically what is the meaning of the text. And usually a good study Bible will not highlight the obvious, but maybe issues that the average reader would not pick up on. And so, for instance, the MacArthur Study Bible uh, does that, and I think he has like 20,000 notes in it. And uh, I don't think he did it exclusively, though his name is on it, just simply because uh, he taught most of his life the New Testament. Didn't teach, he didn't ignore it, but he... He didn't rigorously go through Old Testament books. He, he worked through New Testament books. He spent, like I forget, the first 15 years of his ministry at Grace Community just teaching the four Gospels. And that was great, and what a contribution to the body of Christ. So I say that to say that though his name is on it, there's no doubt he had help from brethren at his seminary and so forth that uh, helped write a lot of the Old Testament notes. Is there a problem with that kind of study Bible? No, not at all, especially if the guy is sound. Uh, You can have other study Bibles that 
are written by a multiplicity of scholars. The, the, the challenge with that is you get like all kinds of a different theological positions. So you could have one passage where someone is affirming post-conversion baptism from the note, and another person is affirming infant baptism. And someone would say, well, that's good, that's healthy. Well, if you already believe and are convinced with post-conversion baptism, you don't want to waste your time on those kinds of notes, and you think it might be better applied. And then there are sometimes in a study Bible, because there are various uh, forms of scholarship, like take the ESV study Bible. I do an analysis of that again in the course on bibliology. There were some uh, passages which I think they just poorly mishandled. And uh, I think there were other explanations that they didn't offer. Uh, So, uh, you know, for the most part, again, I think you want a a literal uh, translation And then there are what we call application study Bibles, where the focus is not on the meaning of the text, but the application of the text. And there's like a multiplicity of those. That's what made the NIV the number one selling translation. And a lot of people used it. And then they came out with the uh, new NIV uh, a few years back in 2010. It was on computer, 2011 in, in paper. And they went to the gender sensitive pronouns, changing the meaning of the text. They first did that with the TNIV, today's New International Version. And when that proposal came out, it just like hit the fan and there was all kinds of protests. Why would you do this? And Dr. Dobson uh, gathered together 100 Christian organizations and scholars and they signed a document opposing it. And Zondervan said, we won't print it. And they left that meeting. And then a deception went and made it. And three years later, it came out. And it was like unbelievable. They lied to the body of Christ. And then when the new New International Version came out, instead of reading like the 85 edition, the newer one that came out in 2011, that was a blend between the old NIV and the TNIV. And so I'm not, I'm not a fan of that for that reason. That's not to say that... Uh, it's, you know, someone can't get saved from it or grow in it or anything like that. And I don't want to, you know, shed discredit on God's word by any stretch of the imagination. But obviously, if you push anything far enough and you exaggerate, you can step back and see, well, there's some wisdom in this. For instance, I don't think anybody would go with the uh, translation, the New World translation that the Jehovah's Witness use. Why? Because it's corrupt. It's totally corrupt. And I hope someone, if you were going for a paraphrase translation, that you would not want to use the message. Now, you know, when Nav Press put it out and they made millions of dollars off of it and they got an initial endorsement from a lot of great people. And I thought, oh, it must be good. And I even quoted it once in a sermon. And I think I need to go back and redo that sermon if I could just find it. But then when I actually started reading, I said, wait a minute, where's this guy coming from? And he left out, like in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he conveniently left out the sin of homosexuality. How can you do that? Well, he did it. And so I say all that to say that in these various um, application Bibles, you can't really apply a text until you understand the meaning of the text to the original audience. So what did it mean to the original audience? And so, for instance, there's an application Bible called the Serendipity Translation. 
And it's basically, it's just filled with questions. You read a verse of scripture and the bottom of the notes, there's just questions. They're trying to get you to apply it. Well, if their interpretation is incorrect, then their question will be incorrect. So like in Hebrews 6, whoever wrote it or however many people wrote it, they believe that that passage taught you could lose your salvation. So they ask a question about, um, have you lost your salvation and how would you get it back? And so you can see the problem with application Bibles. So I think it's better if you're going to get a study Bible, get a literal translation, get one that is geared towards the interpretation. And again, the notes are not inspired. Uh, The notes have to be evaluated. I wouldn't agree with every line in the MacArthur Study Bible, but it's a great study Bible, as would be the Ryrie Study Bible. Those would be two that I would definitely recommend, or even the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. I know it's gone in and out of print, but you certainly could find that on the Internet. So that's where I would start. But I think Roger has a more fundamental need, and that is maybe just to have a decent set of general commentaries. And to start there, there are two I would recommend uh, that are written on a popular level. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew to appreciate them. One is... um, uh, called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It comes in two volumes, Old and New Testament. It's been around since the 1980s. Now, they did it in the NIV, Dallas Seminary, the first edition, um, and they've never updated it. I think they would be ashamed to do it in the new NIV. And what's interesting in the BKC, because you know the seminary was struggling for money and they were willing, the translators of the New International Version, to fund the whole project and because it was a huge, huge project. So they agreed to it, but throughout it, they say, well, actually the NAS reads here, and this would be a little more precise, and they're always making these apologies all the way through it. So I would go with those two because, again, it doesn't look at the obvious, and then in the back of each book, there is a commentary list of, okay, I don't want to focus on 40 pages here on Romans. I want a commentary just on Romans. And that could be anywhere from one volume to ten volumes. So that's um, that's the other one I would recommend would be Warren Wearsby's series. It's now entirely available in all six volumes. He finished it before he died. He died just about a year or so ago in his 90s. Anyway, appreciate the question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859. We have Keith from Plainsville, Kentucky, live on Line 1. Good morning, Keith. You are live with Pastor Carl. Uh, good morning, uh, Dr. Brogy. Uh, again, it's an honor to, to be able to speak with you. I uh, listen to you uh, weekly. I listen to you as much as I can. I study as much from your material as I can, and I appreciate you so much. And uh, my question is in Revelation, again, I called last week. Um, when, when you go into the parentheses, uh, especially in the Trumps, uh, which, I, if I'm correct, covers chapters 10 through 14, I think. Yes. I'm not completely sure about that. Uh, but my question is, when it's covering, for example, when you start in chapter 13, I know these parentheses go back and they go forward in time from yes. the time it's given in Revelation. Would 13 be at the unveiling of the Antichrist, would that go back to the beginning? Uh, so I'll I ask my question. I'll get off and and 
and listen. Yeah, no, much. no, it's a, it's a good question. So um, if someone's not familiar with the book of Revelation, and, and many of our listeners right now are not, the outline is given in 119, right, about the things which you've seen. And so after his introduction, he he writes of this exalted Christ in all of his glory, and then write the things which are. And so that's chapters 2 and 3 as he writes to seven churches and then write about the things that will take place after these things, after these things. And so 4.1 begins after these things. So you're moving into the future. And so from 4, when an open door is given in heaven, and of course uh, the church is no longer seen, the saints that are mentioned, remember the word saint can be used of different groups of people. There's Old Testament saints that the psalmist, for instance, writes about. Uh, there are church saints. We are saints by calling the Apostle Paul, right? There's tribulation saints, and then there's millennial saints. So there's different saints, different uh, believers. We're called saints, holy ones, because we don't earn holiness. It's credited to us. So in 4 to, 19, 4 to 18, really, you don't see the church at all except until they come back in chapter 19 with, with Christ. And so what he'll do, John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, for instance, in the, uh, the book with the seven seals in chapter 5, and then in chapter 6, the seals are opened. And so you um, ask about the, the Antichrist in 13. So the Antichrist is introduced to us as this man who's on a white horse. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And so this is not the Lord Jesus on a white stallion. This is the Antichrist. This is the first of the judgments where he makes his appearance. Now, he has not yet asked for singular worship. In fact, what he allows in the front end is a conglomeration of all the religions of the world brought together. So he's introduced there, and then he walks us through the six seals, and of course, in the seventh seal are contained the seven trumpets, and then the seven trumpets are contained the seven bowls. And so when you come to seven, there's an interlude of sorts, and, and then he goes on and he reflects what's happening during this time. And so he'll do that all the way through the revelation, and, and sometimes he'll look back what's happening during this time of, say, the seal judgments, and sometimes he gives us a glimpse into the future. For instance, if you're back in chapter uh, 11, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so it seems like, well, it's all over. Well, for all practical purposes, it is in the sense that when the seventh trumpet is sounded, in it are seven bowls, and the bowl judgments of, are of such severity, people couldn't live very long on the earth unless God stopped it. And that's what Jesus said. Unless those days had been cut short, no flesh could have survived. And yet here the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And it's interesting because it does say kingdom singular. In Handel's Messiah, it says the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And the King James follows that just because it's a smoother reading. 
But in actuality, all of the Greek manuscripts are singular, the kingdom. Now, it's interesting. Satan offered in Luke 4, Matthew 4, Satan, all the kingdoms of the world if he would bow down and worship him. Why? Because he had them. When Adam forsook his rule, Satan received them. But at this point in human history, there's not a multiplicity of kingdoms. There's a singular kingdom led by the Antichrist. And that singular kingdom will be given over to the Lord Christ, and he'll reign in his singular kingdom forever and ever. And so in 13, he sees this dragon that stood on the sand of the seashore and this beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and, and so on. And so he's giving a fuller description of this one that is first mentioned in the first seal and what he's going to do and the worship he's going to require and the mark that people will take. He goes back and then gives a glimpse of the 144,000 that we were introduced to in chapter 7 and what, what is happening with them and so forth. So there is some interplay back and forth. So when I use the term parenthesis, obviously um, I'm just referring to a common writing style that Jews often did. Uh, sometimes they'll do it in a forward way, sometimes in a backward way. Moses is especially famous for this. Like, for instance, I'll give you one example from the Torah, from the first five books in Genesis chapter 10, for instance. He describes the descendants of, of Noah. Um, and then in chapter 11, the universal language uh, that was uh, created confusion. So you have the table of nations in chapter 10, and you say, oh, we're introduced. How did these come about? Well, he tells us in chapter 11. He gives us the explanation for what he just wrote about in chapter 10. Well, the way they came about is they were one people as they came off the ark, but then God created confusion, and they had to marry, of course, and within their people group, within their language group to be able to function in life and and that's where we got the races. People say, why are black people black? Why are, why do some people have slanted eyes upwards and some downwards and olive skin and dark skin and medium skin and white skin and the table of the nations? And it's an incredible, incredible table. So the revelation is doing similar things backwards and forwards, and I cover that. And if you're new here to the Bible line, we do have an app. It's called Search the Scriptures. And if you go to the app store and type in searchthescriptures.org, uh, you can listen to entire books of the Bible. And, and I did, in essence, 72 hours of teaching in the Revelation. And this brother who's calling from Kentucky is obviously listening to that. I appreciate it, and thanks for your encouragement and your prayer. Let's go to the next one. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Chuck out of Asheville, North Carolina. He writes, he wants to know if uh, Pastor Carl has an opinion or thoughts on the John Birch Society, in particular their belief system. Do they support, promote the cause of Christ, sound doctrine, biblical adherence, and are they a worthy organization to follow or support? Well, let me just first say that they're not a Christian organization by any stretch of the imagination. They're a politically oriented organization, and they certainly have had tons of Christians in them because they are constitutionalists. They believe that the Constitution is the document that we should follow, and, of course, that very document by which our freedoms are enjoyed, our freedoms come from God. They're protected through the Constitution, and that 
document is being attacked, especially in our colleges and universities. I have a son who spent eight years trying to get a law that had been on the books since the 1920s enforced in the colleges of South Carolina. And indeed, uh, because of his efforts, the governor invited him in when he signed that bill. And so this morning, 21,000 students in South Carolina colleges have to read the Constitution of the United States, at least uh, five sections from the Federalist Paper, the Emancipation Doclamation, a letter from Dr. Martin Luther King, 21,000 students. Now he's been working on that in North Carolina. But what is so fascinating to me is the opposition that the colleges have had. And so Jameson wrote the bill that um, Senator Grooms uh, presented in South Carolina, and he wrote the bill for North Carolina, where he serves as a JAG officer, and he's doing this as a citizen of North Carolina, as a resident of North Carolina, and it just passed in the House last week. But the opposition, again, especially from UNC Chapel Hill, they hate this nation. They are indoctrinating young people into socialism. And the sad thing is, is they say, well, it's taught in high schools. Yeah, I don't think so. Not very well. When you look at the surveys, uh, in fact, I I encouraged them. I said, you should do a survey with just Marine officers and enlisted guys. And, you know, so many of us might on occasion raise our right hand to swear to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. But sadly, most people don't know what's in it. I said, just ask some basic questions. And, of course, when Fox News, CNN, and others have done surveys on it, it's just unbelievable. Um, People think Judge Judy was on the Supreme Court, and we could go from there. I mean, it's unbelievable. And yet you have these university presidents who are opposing it. Well, the John Birch Society was very defensive of the Constitution. So it started back in the 19 late 1950s, and it was largely an anti-communist group because communism, uh, with the domino effect it was having on the world, was huge. Um, It was trying to uh, promote social conservatism. Some would say they're like super far right, but still they had a profound effect. Guys like William F. Buckley Jr., if you remember him, uh, with that British accent or that not really British accent, but that... Boston accent, you know, he, he led the way in a lot of it. Uh, it slowly has dissipated and gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, what should a Christian's role be in it today? It would be really easy if you said, I'm a member of the John Birch Society, to immediately turn someone off to that where you can't communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. So you want to be careful here. You know, remember, God's not a Republican, God's not a Democrat, God's not an independent. You don't want your political viewpoints to be a stumbling block. But do you take political viewpoints? If someone asked me, Is I'm a, am I a Democrat? I'd say, well, why would I want to be a Democrat? Why do I want to be in favor of killing babies up to the ninth month? I, I wouldn't want to be associated with that party. Why would, I, why would I want to promote transgenderism and homosexuality? I, I wouldn't want to do that, yet that's part of the party platform. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone in the Republican Party is a Christian. There are some rhinos who are almost just as Democrat on the social issues as a Democrat is. 
but certainly they reflect maybe closer a biblical worldview. But I wouldn't want that to be a stumbling block. So people say, well, you get political. I get political when the political realm walks into the moral realm. When you think about the John Birch Society, it's like it has a super far right flavor to it. And that's not to say that there's not a lot of good people who've been involved in it, like Tim LaHaye, who wrote the Left Behind series, or Phyllis Shafley, who is a conservative Roman Catholic. Um, she was involved in it, and, and the John Birch Society played a major role in uh, launching the moral majority. But you don't want your political view to be a stumbling block. Trump's dad was a major funder of the John Birch Society. So it's an interesting group. I am I, I know a good friend who's in it. He's tried to get, no, I don't want to join the John Birch Society. I, I'm, I'm here not to change the political uh, nature of the country. I'm here to preach the gospel. And, of course, if you get enough believers, then you can change the reflection of how um, – different moral issues are are viewed. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Our next question comes in as anonymous. A listener has been trying to figure out how to reconcile the fact that if salvation is not a matter of works, how then is God's wrath found to increase when a nation approves of things like homosexual marriage, especially when we live in a sinful world and we are all born sinners? And what about God's wrath being poured out on Christ? Okay, so remember, there are different kinds of wrath in Scripture. There's what we might call cataclysmic wrath. That would be reflective of, oh, maybe in the broadest terms, Noah's flood or the judgment that came on Sodom and Gomorrah. And there are instances in Scripture where you see pictures of cataclysmic wrath. Then there's what we call um, eschatological wrath. Eschatology looks at end times. And so the Bible speaks that, uh, in the Revelation and in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse and other places of the wrath that is going to come upon the earth. That's tribulation wrath. And again, it's God's judgment in terms of waking up a lost world one final time. There's eternal wrath. I spoke to this issue on Sunday where we looked at the great white throne judgment and even the Sunday before when we looked at the current hell uh, which is Hades, that someday will be cast into the lake of fire. That's uh, eternal wrath. But then there's a present expression of wrath that the book of Romans speaks of, and I think you're maybe blending some of these together. In Romans 1.18, the Apostle Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed, not will be or has been, but is. It's a present active indicative. It is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So there's a current aspect, and it comes from a suppression of basic general truth that every man knows in his heart. He says that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it ever to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, all men have a knowledge of God. There is no such thing biblically as an atheist. And if you're a Christian and you're sharing your testimony, you're trying to make it sound dramatic, well, I was an atheist and then I 
did this and studied that and became a believer in God and then went from there. That's just a lie. It's not true. It's not true. Now, you maybe have convinced yourself it's true that you've told that to yourself long enough, but it's not true. Every man has the knowledge of God innately. Now, you can suppress that knowledge and braggadociously say, I'm agnostic, I'm a know-nothing, I don't know if there is or isn't a God or even claim atheism. But listen, it's not true because God says you have a knowledge of him. In fact, he describes this suppression for even though they knew God, that is, they didn't know him like eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, but they knew God in terms of his existence. Paul echoes the same truth in 2.15 of Romans. He says, Gentiles, there it's used synonymously with a pagan. For when Gentiles who don't have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a lot of themselves. How? That they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So even the Gentile who doesn't have the law of God shows it written on their heart. Our church supports hundreds of missionaries, one in Papua New Guinea. And when Wayne went there to minister to the Arumba people, I mean, they were just like real natives. I'm talking about loincloths and spears. And uh, interestingly, in that community of some 28,000 people that he had been called to reach, there was a certain moral code. It was wrong to mess with your neighbor's wife. It was wrong to steal their goods. It was wrong to commit murder. They had never seen a Bible, but they had the Bible, so to speak, the law of God written in their hearts, and so their conscience either defends them, that a boy, you did what was good, or it accuses them, you did what was wrong. Now, you can sear your conscience. The Indians used to say your conscience is like a triangle that spins in in your heart. But the more you disobey it, the points of the triangle are worn off. And Paul would describe that as having a seared conscience, a callous conscience where you become insensitive. But all men know God. Even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. They became foolish in their speculations, and their hearts were darkened. They said they were wise, but God says they became fools. Why? Because they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. They worship the creation rather than the creator. That's the green movement. You've got people in this nation who literally seem to worship the creation. It's a religion. So what does God do? He gives them over to the lust of their hearts. And so he goes on and he describes that uh, he gave them over first, three times over. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. And so in this country you know, through the Scopes trial, uh, people said, well, you know, um, evolution is true. And William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president a few times, served as the secretary of state, stumbled over the question that someone asked here a few weeks ago, where did Cain get his wife? And, you know, people said, well, if he can't answer, uh, it must be true. And but it really didn't flesh itself out in America until the 1960s in the public school textbooks. And I remember in the fourth or fifth, it was fourth grade, it was Miss Weeks. And she said, um, look, I don't believe this, but I'm required to teach it. And it's here in your textbook. And for the first time I was introduced to evolution. I'm glad I was introduced to it in the sense that, you know, you need to be conversant in what the world thinks Um, But sadly, it was posited as fact. 
in the creation model, which this country had embraced, was viewed as absolute folly, that God created the heavens and the earth. And a lot of Christians got around it, and they taught theistic evolution. Well, I don't believe in evolution all by itself. I just believe God used the process of evolution in order to create the world. No, that's, that's heretical, and there are many reasons for it. And so then we saw when we suppressed God and we passed some laws, you can no longer pray in school, you can no longer read the Bible in school, and, you know, we were just pushing God out of our minds, out of our consciences, and we saw the sexual revolution. Did we repent? No. So God gave us over to homosexuality. And listen, it was a big deal here at 88.7 when Dr. Dobson um, covered uh, decades ago how uh, DeGeneres, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, had kissed another female on national TV, and that was like a scandal. And it was like front-page Christian news. It was on all the talk shows across America, including back then Focus on the Family. And uh, now it's just like normal. It's, I mean, they kiss, women kiss, men kiss on Hallmark. You know, that, that's just where we are at. And when we have a president in the United States who's in favor of children being mutilated, and don't tell me it hasn't come to the public schools. Someone just joined our church, and they were sitting at the table at the new members' lunch with me on Sunday and was revealing all the books that they found in the public schools here in Beaufort County and bringing them to the school board. I mean, it's just basically evil. Um, and then the third giving over is to a depraved mind. And so it says the country, the nation, the people, and now sadly the world is being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. Men will be full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, slanderers, hateful, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, because while they may claim to be atheistic and worship the creation, they still know the ordinance of God. They cannot smush him out entirely. That those who do such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. They become evangelists for sin. And that's where we're at today. So you're blending different aspects of God's wrath. Jesus dealt with the problem of eternal wrath as he dealt for every sin that's ever been committed or could be committed. Once for all time, he died for sins. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. He made a complete and eternal payment. So we're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. It produces a born-again life. Uh, they profess to know God, Titus 1.16, but by their deeds they deny him. That's modern-day evangelicalism. Oh, I'm born again. I'm saved. You know, yeah, my girlfriend and I, we live together. Yeah, we like to go out and get high on weekends, and, but I'm saved. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. And um, Christ died for such sin. And people can come to him and find forgiveness. Good question. Let's go to the next. Our next question comes in also anonymous out of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They write, I feel like as Christians, we should not use CBD products, but some argue that it is fine because there is no THC in it, or if so, less than half a percent. 
What is your biblical view on this? I would like to remain anonymous, which they were. Okay, so CBD, it stands for cannabid, cannabidiol. It's, it comes in oils, it comes in pills, it comes in soaps, and it's a big product. It, it's basically made from the hemp plant. And, of course, federal law four or five years ago restricted the amount that could be put in it to 0.3%. Uh, and supposedly it's being used for the marketing of problems, everything from mood disorders to not being able to sleep to epilepsy. So should a Christian use it? To me, it's very similar. Should a Christian use alcohol? Number one, think about stewardship of your body. Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, so you're to glorify God in your body because you've been bought with a price. Even the FDA in March of 2020 during COVID, I read an article that they said, look, we're not fully aware of all the ramifications of CBD products, and it has the potential to create harm and serious side effects. Even the Mayo Clinic and Harvard Medical School came out with some articles saying that when you mix CBD products with other medications you are taking, it can create severe problems. There's been some warnings in the last six months of people who take CBD products while they're pregnant. And look, even Tucker Carlson came out not on CBD, but on alcohol. Not on alcohol. He came out with, he said, we're in a national crisis and no one is talking about it where men are infertile and they're not able to have children. You know what a major cause of infertility is? It's alcohol abuse. It's people who go out and get blitzed and it lowers your productivity in terms of the seed that God gave in a man's body. And some are arguing that CBD products may do the very same thing. Again, the whole thing is not out. Financially, in terms of financial stewardship, it's super expensive. You say, well, what does it make a difference if it cures the problem? Well, I have yet to see any problem that CBD can cure that does not uh, cannot be addressed by another medication. Look, there's all kinds of things. You know, they came out in the 80s and 90s saying a glass of wine a day would would be, you know, good for your heart and your blood circulation and all that. Now they come out and they say just the opposite. And so why do I want to get close to sin? I'm, I would be concerned about my testimony, even if you take the low-dose THC that's found in CBD oils and so forth, um, you can still test positive for the presence of THC by using a CBD product. So your job is at stake. But I think, among other things, your testimony is at stake. You know, oh, yeah, well, you know, I just take this CBD oil. And, yeah, sure you are. You're home smoking joints at night. You're fired. And, oh, you're a Christian. You're, you're, you're just like we thought, one of those hypocrites. And the Scripture says to abstain from every appearance of evil. So it may, you know, someday be proven safe. It has not yet. There's other medications that address it. But you know what it is? It's a stepping stone. Medical marijuana is a stepping stone into legalized marijuana. That's where it always goes. Almost all the states where marijuana is legal recreationally, it started with medical marijuana. So Tom Davis, of whom many of you voted for, 
you know, has stood up on the floor of the South Carolina Senate many times and defended, you know, medical marijuana. Yeah, it's done him a lot of good, his use of products and what he went through in the last six months. And and I hope he'll repent of it and call on Christ and find forgiveness. But listen, as soon as we get medical marijuana, it's a short step to having recreational marijuana. And so now Colorado, you know, look at the mess they are in. One of the earliest states to go to recreational marijuana. And it is a, a drug it's a stepping stone to other drugs. I don't think it was by accident that 350 sheriff's departments across America and all 50 states were opposed to medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. Why? Because they saw it as a gateway drug and a stepping stone into greater evil. And the country is going to fall apart. The country has a huge drug problem right now. Fentanyl is coming through the southern border I'm told that it's coming mostly from China. It's being mixed in with other, maybe even things like gummy bears. They have rainbow candy. And you've got to be so careful when your children take some of these things. And, and uh, they're, they're trying to destroy the nation. And they're doing a good job when you go from 20,000 annual deaths to over 100,000. And we're tracking the same for this year. There's a problem. And so I don't want to be involved with the alcohol industry. I don't want to be involved with the pot industry. Why do I want to make those people rich when there's other alternatives? I'd rather die than take their crummy CBD oil. Um, so anyway, it's a good question. That's just where I come down. Some people will be mad at me for it, but that's okay. Get your own radio show and you can tell what you want to tell. God bless you. I hope you'll walk with Jesus Christ today. Jesus Christ today.